Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit fightradio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Ruth Panyarski, and we're going to be talking about her book, her memoir, Journey of a Self, Memoir of an Artist. Ruth Panyarski set out to find the ideal friend and the perfect mate, but what she encountered were spells of paranoia, extreme anxiety, and hallucinations. Trying to navigate her cyclic melody, she undertook a rigorous architectural program in search of her passion. What she discovered on her journey is captured brilliantly in this unflinching, honest memoir. Ruth Panarski was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1956 and grew up in Glen Cove, Long Island, New York. She attended public schools, and when she was seven years old, her mother took her to a life drawing class where she depicted a sketch of a nude woman. From that moment onward, Ruth became a keen observer of the physical world and was drawn to art and the built environment. For more information, you can visit two different sites. One is called BattlingMentalIllnessAlone.com. Or you can also visit RuthPonarski.com. Um, That's Ruth, P-O-N-I-A-R-S-K-I. And from either website, you can visit the other one. There's a real quick link back and forth. So with that, I'd like to welcome Ruth to the show. Good day, Ruth. Good day. Thank you for having me. It is my pleasure, and well, I told you, I tell you, when when I got done reading your memoir, I was exhausted. <laughs> but, oh, it's, a, but, uh, yep, it's one activity after the other. Never, never gave up anything. Yeah, absolutely. But but it, it was, it's a it's a wonderful read, and, and I'm sure you know it's um, going to be helping people who who read it. Um, so first, before we start. Um, talking about the, the kind of like the incident that kind of set some things off. Um, we're, you know, when it comes to writing memoirs, I'm often um, struck by the courage of um, someone to kind of put their life out there, you know, for others to read, um, and particularly when, you know, we're dealing with mental health, um, you know, and, and some of the many challenges, you know, that you encounter. So, when when you decided to write this memoir, were, were, did you have any reservations about some of the information you were going to be putting into the book? Well, you know, for the longest time during my illness, I never really shared it with anybody. I, had, I led a double life, uh, a life that I would break down for three weeks, and then I would go back to my life and go back to my friends and education, whatever I was doing. I led a double life nobody knew. Okay, you know, you said that you had this 
you know, double life. They're kind of separate from each other. So, um, again, any reservations, you know, about putting it out there? Because it is something completely different. It's very different and it's very personal. I mean, it really, it gets down to the nitty gritty of my, my uh, reality and my being. And, um, you know, I went through um, uh, many breakdowns that, you know, uh, that a normal person, you know, just would, would not dream of going through that. It, it's a very, you know, for instance, um, my first breakdown uh, after I ingested uh, angel dust at a college party, um, I hallucinated and, and I innocently, I didn't even know what was going on. I innocent, I didn't know it was laced with angel dust. So, um, I deteriorated, I hallucinated, I had a rest for an hour, then I got up and left the apartment where the college party uh, occurred. I got in my car, I drove to the New York State Thruway, and I got all of a sudden very paranoid, thinking that there was, a, in my head, that there was a revolution going on between the capitalists and the socialists. And it was a bloody revolution, and all my people were leaving the earth. They were abandoning me. So I abandoned my car on the throughway, on the shoulder of the throughway, and I proceeded to walk 12 miles down the New York State throughway south, looking for launching pads where these people who were leaving the earth were leaving in spaceships. This is all in my head. Then when the, when the dawn came, I, I, uh, at 5, 6 o'clock in the morning when the light came, I hitched a ride back to the college town where my apartment was, and I had to abort the architecture program, and I left. My father had picked me up, and, and I was destined to my first psychiatric session in my whole life. I never dreamt of being with a therapist, opening up to a therapist. It was very awkward and very, very scary to me. And um, yeah. and this psychiatrist, I had him. Uh, I had I was under his care for seven years, and my breaks were getting consistently worse. My insomnia was getting worse. Couldn't sleep, and he was ineffective in treating a high risk patient. And um, it culminated into a very horrific accident, which I'll talk about maybe later. Um, but this is one example that I've written in the book, and there are multitudes of them, living through them, recuperating, and never, ever giving up. That's the message of the book. That's where my I overcame my embarrassment because I saw that my energy and my never giving up trying to achieve normalcy uh, could inspire others who are afflicted and suffering in one way or another. Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, that that experience um, with the angel dust, the PCP, um, it came in the form of a brownie, you know, from from what you said in the book of, you know, someone who you trusted, um, and that, um, you know, that seemed to be the start, you know, of. Now, do you feel that the um, the ingestion of that um, PCP, do you feel that that was kind of like a, maybe a trigger or something yes. that kind of, okay, can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think some people, you know, listening may, you know, feel that, you know, there's something that's, you know, 
kind of wants to come out but doesn't, you know, so can you talk a little bit about that idea of it maybe being a trigger? Yeah, I will, I will, I will give you a little history. In my sophomore year in 1975, the fall of my sophomore year, I indulged in smoking marijuana with my group of friends from the architecture program. And one night, and I, I smoked so much, I blacked out and went into a pump, like a blackout for four hours. And then after I awoke, I said, I'm never going to, I'm not going to do this anymore. But what it did was, the residual of it, it left me paranoid. Um, I lost my uh, drive to do my work. Um, it made me passive. It made me a little paranoid. Um, and that was the predisposition to when I, two years, like a year and a half later, when I had innocently eaten that brownie cake laced with angel dust, PCP. So I already had a condition of being depressed, anxious, and also that year, my boyfriend, who I was very close with and I really wanted to spend my life with him, didn't return to the college year in the fall of 1977. I felt very alone. I felt abandoned and, again, depressed and isolated, and that all attributed to the the uh, taking of the PCP and just kicking off a whole uh plethora of um, psychotic episodes uh, in my life. Yeah. I mean, imagine... Yeah, how into... I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, imagine, like, I have a complex kind of mind. I'm always uh, creating and everything. And just imagine, like, Einstein, who was, like, very creative and a visionary in his subject matter, taking uh, LSD or a PCP. I think it would be... I think he would go crazy. <laughs> with that really? kind of mind, a creative mind, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Now, you, in the book, you, you kind of, and, and speaking of creative minds, you know, you, you have kind of a, a dual, um, kind of passion or, or dual interest, you know, one in, in architecture and the other in art, you know, and both of them, I feel, would be, you know, fall, certainly fall into that creativity aspect or creative aspect, um, but one of them is, you know, the architecture one, excuse me, what is one kind of more formal, you know, and more structured. Um, so can you um, tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of like those dual passions and, and you know, how, you know, what kind of drew you to each of those? Okay, now, in high school, my high school years, I found out I was very good at sketching and drawing. I also took physics and advanced physics. I thought I was really good in that, too. I excelled in that. I excelled in math. So I put my artistic and my math came out with a uh, thing, you know, an architecture uh, pursuit. Because, um, you know, you can make a living with architecture. With the art, you know, it's very, very difficult to make a living with um, paint, paintings and, and fine art, um, and um, and also um, I didn't really I didn't take art in college. I took one semester of it, and um, I really basically learned uh, my painting on my own. Um, I didn't learn it formally in a college setting, 
And, uh, of course, the architecture, that's the one that I really studied in, our, in uh, college. Um, it was a very difficult uh, regimen. Uh, it, it dealt a lot with uh, uh, ruptures and, and then the creative side. You had to create a building or a, a, a library, any kind of building, uh, which were building assignments. So you always had to create. You're always, always on the creative mode. And it was strenuous. And yeah. you, at, at that time, in 1977, it was drafting by manual drafting, not by computer-aided design. So that was a whole other discipline. You had to draft really well to express your ideas and your building, the ideas of your building and the organization of your building. I was great at designing it and sculpting, sculpting it in, in, a, in um, a model. But when it came to doing the drawing, I was not that good. And I just didn't develop uh, enough to really uh, present my, my projects uh, legitimately. And um, yeah. the discipline wore on me, and, uh, and on top of being depressed and anxious, I just, I eventually couldn't do my work. I couldn't do the architecture. And I had to yeah. uh, leave it, you know, and then take a while off take a, a, a semester off of college. So. Yeah, I, when I when I was reading the one assignment you had about um, a subway entrance, <laughs> my mind was like, now how can you, how creative can you be with a subway entrance? But but I'm sure, I guess there are many ways, you know. So anyway, that was one of those things that I was going through and reading your book. I thought, hmm, you know, so it kind of made me stop and, and ponder possibilities artistic possibilities, so. Yeah. Then, you know, again, that was presenting it and being able to build it mm -hmm. is a whole other spectrum. Whereas in painting, you know, you can paint on the canvas, you'll have the finished product on the canvas. It's a very one-to-one -one process, but the architecture is a whole, it's a, a team of processes. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, yes, it's, it's much more, to me, it's, more of a challenge, and I wasn't disciplined enough to really excel in that in that subject area. Yeah. yeah. However, no. Work, yeah, uh -huh. working in the field because I did work in the field, and um, I did draft. I wasn't the best drafter, of course, as I said, but it did give me the discipline to um, really uh, explore my paintings, and my paintings are. are you have to be very disciplined to do my paintings because there's figures and animals and places and the real messages and the whole process in my paintings. And the artist, taking architecture helped me excel in the paintings. Yeah, I would think that they would, they could easily complement each other. I mean, aspects of both tie into both efforts. You know, I mean, you have the the structure, you know, with with the painting and with the architecture, you have the creativity aspect. So, so they're both, <coughs> excuse me, they both can intersect in a way. Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, what you mentioned, you mentioned you were talking about um, the idea of uh, the going, put, going to the architecture, going through with that kind of focus. 
because, you know, there isn't really money made in art. Um, it seemed that that was a feeling of your mother, um, you know, and she seems, you know, as I was going through and reading, she seems to have, a, um, you know, an, an influence on, you know, a big influence on your journey. So can, can you share with the listeners just a little bit about about your mother and the, um, and her beliefs that influenced you along this, you know, this kind of curved journey that you, you've been on? Yeah, she she said to me, you know, architecture, you could, you could, you know, you're not alone. This is what she said. You're not alone in architecture. You're in a firm. You're working with people. You're, you could make a living. You could make a salary. Um, it's a whole different genre than doing art. Art, you know, it, you could be along to a studio with art, but also, art is more isolated. You're one-on-one with the canvas, more isolated, and very difficult to make a living. So she always stressed to me, you want to have something that you could make a living with. Uh, you could do your art, but if you have another uh, discipline that you could make a living with and support yourself, then she was really um, all gung-ho for that. But the only – one of the drawing uh, – one of the factors that uh, – was against me was it was a very male-dominated field at that time in 1977. There weren't any uh, – I did not have any mentor, and my mother was not really a role model. My mother was uh, – God bless her. She was a housewife. She did. She devoted herself to her family, but um, she didn't pursue a profession, so I didn't really have a close role model. And in being in a male-dominated field, uh, it was very difficult psychologically as well as being able to do my work. And, um, you know, it was hard to be taken seriously, and uh, it was just a very difficult road, especially uh, um, in conjunction with my ongoing cyclic malady, my mental illness. It all compounded itself to make a really isolated existence. Yeah. So, how did your how did your mother um, deal with you know you and the mental illness aspect? What 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 you know what how how did she help or or maybe hinder you know your experience? Well, the hindering is she didn't really understand um, what what was really going on. Um, she she didn't uh, really wasn't uh, informed that um, you know being a woman in architecture at that time and going to college for that was really a, an uphill battle to shatter the glass ceiling as they say the glass ceiling and she really wasn't aware of that consciously um, she knew that I was talented you know she. She knew her daughter was talented and in art and in um, the other areas, and she really wanted me to excel. And she, you know, she was good in her ten- intentions, but she wasn't really fully aware of the social aspects of it all in, in that era, in 1977, 1979, the 80s, all that that era. So. Yeah. Yeah, that that's you know, and and I think you know one of the reasons I kind of wanted to bring that up is because uh, you know even in today's world, you know, men, there is still a mental an Ill, a stigma, stigma 
um, stigma associated with with mental health, mental illness. And you know, there with in, in today's world, you know, many young girls are you know are experiencing mental health challenges. And you know, it's um, I just wanted to kind of you know put it out there for mothers, you know, to you know to kind of be on the lookout, you know, and, and maybe, you know, if something's up to, you know, try and get more involved um, and more aware, you know, just um, because it's, you know, with you know, having an, an informed mother, you know, would certainly help, you know, you know, help with uh, the challenges, you know, I mean, had yours been you know, in the time, I mean, true, you're right, in, in the 70s, you know, the, the mental health topic was even more stigmatized. But, but um, you know, had she been, you know, more aware, may have been able to help you a little bit more here and there, I would say. Oh, absolutely. But, again, you know, it was the yeah. times. It was the 70s and 80s. I, I don't even think, you know, a lot of parents were not even as hands-on at that point in time as compared to now. I think now parents are, are more hands-on and more aware of the psychological nuances of, you know, going to a classroom and, and picking up a, a subject, whatever it may be, and pursuing yeah. it as a, as a life goal. Um, yeah. Back then, the parent, you know, they weren't really involved with the child that much, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Um, well, we're about halfway through the show, Ruth. I want to take this, and then when we come back, I want to talk a bit about um, the the therapy, you know, the, the psychiatrist that you had met, and, and just, you know, talk a little bit about the whole, um, you know, psychotic experience from from the experience itself through the, the healing aspect, okay? Okay, okay. Okay, great. Okay, everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide. Books, nature photography, calendars, and 5x7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeart Radio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, ByteRadio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone, thank you for staying with us again today. My special guest is Bruce Panarski, 
and we're talking about her memoir, Journey of the Self, Memoir of an Artist. And again, you can find out more by visiting Ruth's website, which one is battlingmentalillnessalone.com, or you can go ahead and visit her Ruth Panarski, com, and that's Ruth, P-O-N, I-A-R-S-K-I dot com. And then once you get to one website, there's a real quick link at the top to switch back and forth. So you can check that out. Okay. With that, we're back. Ruth? Hello. Okay. Great. So I'm going to start this half of the show by talking about the idea, the psychotic episode. You know, so, you know, you, you talked a little bit about, you know, what happened when you, you know, right after the, the Browning incident and the, and the New York Thruway and, and just the, 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 the things that were going through your head. But can you tell, tell us a little bit more just about, um, the feeling, you know, I mean, that, that kind of episode creates within someone? Okay. First of all, um, for it, of getting, uh, of, of this, uh, of an event that was gonna, a psychotic event was lack of sleep. I could not sleep. My mind would race. And, um, the lack of sleep and then I would, uh, uh, develop a psychosis and a pattern. And, um, I, in my head, I would always look like 30 years ahead and I was abandoned, uh, left in a, a war-torn world, and I was abandoned by my family and by my people. And so I was afraid to go to a sleep because if I went, if I slept, I would wake up to an abandoned wilderness world, alone, isolated. So that was going through my mind, and that would make me run and and I and and do all run away and all kinds of things like that. Um, and the psychiatrist first psychiatrist that I had, he was very Freudian. He wouldn't really talk about life and common sense, uh, how, how to apply common sense to your life. And he never took notes. And he also isolated me from my parents because he wanted me to be independent and develop an independent support system aside from my parents, which was the wrong route to take because at the time my parents were really, I was living with my parents. It was uh, it was really a support system, and he isolated me from my parents, and he really was not prepared for a high-risk patient. And my breakdowns were getting worse. With uh, my insomnia was developing uh, in each episode, and I'll give you an it culminated okay in a in a horrific episode where I didn't sleep for seven days and seven nights. And I was in my apartment, I was in an apartment at that time in 1984, and I had participated in a confrontational psychological workshop. Uh, I was full of anxiety and I just couldn't handle the stress of confrontational exercises in this workshop. So I was alone in my apartment and I imagined that my neighbors were going to persecute me and kill me. And then, again, uh, the lack of sleep, I uh, imagined I was abandoned and everybody left me and I was alone and I did, and uh, I was alone in this torn world and I was going to be persecuted. So I decided to um, 
escape my apartment. I couldn't go through the front door. So I tied bed sheets together to form a rope and planned to rappel down the wind, uh, go through the window and rappel the 30-foot wall. Well, when I, and I anchored the bed sheets to a steel post, my kitchen steel post, table steel post. And when I went through the window with the tied sheets, the gravity was so enormous, enormous, I couldn't really repel. I, I, in split seconds, I planned my fall. I fell 30 feet. I landed on my feet and rolled to my side so I wouldn't hit my head on the pavement. Again, I blacked out, woke up in the emergency room, 12 hours of surgery, two months in the hospital, and five months in a wheelchair, not knowing that I'd ever walk again. I did walk again. And then at that moment, 1984, right after that accident, I found the right psychiatrist, George. George was a Quaker and a veteran of World War II. And he was very, very hands-on common sense. He even wrote essays on common sense, like how to have a, a positive relationship, how to deal with your insomnia, develop sleep, uh, sleep therapy, um, how to invest your money, how to, the vitamins you should take, you know, and so forth. All these common sense essays that he would write and hand out. And he included my parents once a month in a therapy session. He also included my brother when my brother was home from the Army. And um, at that point, I was able to establish healthier relationships. Um, I did not uh, – my double life that I was leading kind of melded into one life. And um, my, my psychotic episodes became less and less. Instead of every six months to a year, it became like every – three to four years, and then that it became less and less until 2010, which was my last episode, and um, thankfully, I've outgrown the psychotic patterns that I would get into. Yeah, and also, when I, was, when I was hospitalized for one of my uh, episodes in 1990s, I was given a medicine, Zyprexa, uh, which is the... Um, the generic for Zyprexa is um, Olanzapine. That's an antipsychotic, and it worked. It was effective. It was unbelievable. And it took me 20 years to find that medication, and then another six or seven years to establish the right, the correct dosage. And uh, it's helped me enormously. So I believe in medication. I believe that you have to experiment with medication. You have to experiment with a the therapist. If your therapist is not effective for you, for you, and it doesn't work, seek out another therapist, get a recommendation, do not wait seven years, and um, and never give up. That that's the the message of this book is also to never give up, never ever give up. Yeah, that, that's really important. And, you know, that, I, the reason that I brought up all of that, <clears throat> excuse me, was for what you had said, you know, that if there is a therapy or, or therapist um, and or medication that aren't working for you, um, you know, to find something that does work, you know, that not, not everyone is, is unique. And, you know, that it, excuse me, it takes a very personalized approach to be able to, 
to conquer, you know, the challenges that are, you know, that our our mind can create. Oh yeah, the mind can. The mind is a very complex instrument. It can create a lot of stuff. And, uh, <laughs> yep. You know, you, you just have to uh, to um, reason yourself, and and if you're going through an, an episode, to dip it in the bud. That's another thing. It's eventually, I became writing this memoir. I could I could see the patterns of psychosis, the patterns of my demise uh, that developed over time. It was uh, a pattern, and I was able. to separate myself, disengage myself from myself and see the pattern of demise. So that helps a lot. Yeah. I, I recommend keeping a journal. And for fellow sufferers, keep a journal, especially in stressful times. You know, keep a journal of how you're feeling and what you're thinking and and uh and uh communicate self so uh what you're going through and that pattern. Every all creatures of habit we have patterns. So uh um yeah. uh portray through the events you're going in your life, maybe sensitive dresses, you know, losing a loved one or you know, anything could kick off a nervous breakdown. And a separation, yeah. a divorce, you know, any of these things. And it's it's really advisable to have a support system if you can develop a support system consciously of people around you, positive people. And yeah, uh, you know, very... yeah. I was yeah, you know, the one of the things that that was a you know a very common thread throughout the book was the experience of you know isolation, you know, and, and abandonment. Um, you know, and, you know, kind of what you're saying right now is having the, that support group around is vital. So, I mean, in a way, um, if someone is, like right now, feeling that sense of isolation or, or abandonment, you know, that, that is the feeling that they, they're experiencing now, and you know that having a support, support group will help, what would you say to someone how they can maybe um, move from that sense of isolation to maybe a sense of community or some sense of support? You know, well, what, what are some yeah. things that one can do? Yeah, uh, for, uh, first of all, look up things on the computer. Uh, I, I'm going to name a number of things, not to feel alone. To read biographies, to read uh, about people who have suffered with mental illness and, you know, what happened to them. So you don't feel like you're the only one that's going through this isolated, you know, incident, which I had felt. I felt like I was the only one. I was a pariah. I was the only one going through this, and everybody was looking down on me. So, you know, that feeling is a very common feeling with people who are, going through an isolated incident, a psychotic incident, a nervous breakdown. And having a support group, I mean, a support group could be a friend, it could be um, a mentor, it could be a teacher, it could be, um, if you had a good therapist, that, that obviously that's a big part of your support system. 
um, a professional, um, a theological person, and anyone. I mean, that you could establish a support system, a member of your family. Um, and when you feel something coming on, talk about it. Like, really talk about it to somebody in your support group. Really express how you're feeling and talk, talk it out. Communicate and talk it out. And try to nip it in the bud, you know. But, right. You know, no, feeling no. alone and isolated is, is, is really a horrible feeling. Horrible feeling. Mm-hmm. But it does get exasperated yeah. when you don't get sleep. When, and a lot of people do not get enough sleep. Yeah, I can I can understand that. I've been, lately, I've had my my patterns have been pretty pretty wild, but um, but I you know try to make a, um, a concentrated effort uh, to be able to make sure that you know that I um that I get that sleep and and quality sleep. You know, it's, it's you know a restful kind of up every hour, every you know hour and a half even isn't. Uh, isn't as healthy as getting a, a good, deep, nice, restful, rejuvenating sleep. I know. And you know what? You have to work up to that. If you're not, if you're not having that kind of sleep, you have to work up to it. And like every every night, I have a system for insomnia. If you if you get two hours good sleep, and then that's great. Then this next day, try to get two and a half hours of good sleep and build build it up. Will it and build it up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very much, very much. Um, you know, and, you know, when you were, the idea of, um, you know, the isolation and abandonment, I just thought it was interesting when your mother, with your mother's comment about architecture, not, you're not alone. It, it seems like there was um, a, some kind of maybe even an instinctual kind of um, knowledge you know, that, you know, isolation and, and alone, um, being alone was, or not experiencing that was, would be important for you, you know, you personally to, to have that. And, and I don't, you know, I mean, that may be reading too much into it, but, but it's, it's interesting that that was, you know, that she was, she recognized that as being an aspect that's important to, to you. Um, Ruth. She it's an important aspect, but really the opposite happened. I felt more alone and isolated than ever. Um, yeah. So you know. Yeah. You know, you could yeah. feel isolated in the crowd. You could be in a crowd of familiar yeah. people and still feel isolated. You know. That's yeah. something she, yeah, very, very she didn't grasp onto. She didn't grasp onto that. Um, yeah. You know. Um, yeah. Now, one of the also one um, in toward the beginning of the book, you know, you talk about several men, <laughs> you know, and you know, oh, yeah. just, uh, <laughs> the the relationships and the challenges and the you know the again the sense of abandonment or or, or isolation when things didn't work out. Can you talk a little bit about your kids? At one point, I believe in the book, you indicated that, you know, finding that soulmate, you know, person was, like, more important than maybe career. I mean, so can you talk a little bit about the idea of, you know, kind of what were you looking for back then 
And and how did that shift as your, um, you know, treatment and, and understanding, you know, over time, how, how that shifted over time? Well, you know, I I went to college, you know, I, I was half, you know, serious about the architecture, but I also wanted to find a boyfriend and eventually a husband. That was my big thing. It was, you know, I grew up with a, a woman who was conventional, my mother, and that sort of look was, that was a role model for me, for my mother. She was a, a, a housewife, a homemaker, you know, married, had her children, her family, and her, everything. That was my role model. So I went to a professional program school, and that was my role model. And it was very important for, to me to find somebody who understood me. And as time went on with the development of my nervous breakdowns, um, I was always um, very secretive. I didn't, uh, as I said, I led a double life. And the men that I went out with, you know, they were not, the, the, first of all, they weren't ready to settle down anyway at that age. Um, and uh, two of the men that I had gone out with had experienced my breakdowns, and they didn't accept me. They rejected me in a very subtle way, which made me feel really isolated. Um, and then I came to a point in the book, and I threw out all of the men I had been dated, about dated, about maybe 15. I threw them all out to the sea. I said, I'm going to be happy with myself. <laughs> I'm going to be happy and I'm going to live myself, my, my life. And I'm, I don't, I'm not really, I don't care if it, for any man in my life. Well, about, uh, I got a phone call. I, I had signed up with this dating service, um, about six months prior to my throwing out all the guys. And I got a call from a gentleman and, uh, we had gone out, and uh, he was very polite, very nice, very sincere, and we hit it off. And from then on, my life changed. Um, he proposed to me. We got married in four months. We've been married now for 36 years. Um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but I had to go out with all those people to find out what I needed and what I was looking for and, and, and in a person. And, you know, who I can really uh, understand and be compatible with and who yeah. really accepted my breakdowns because I had four breakdowns with my husband. Ironically, yeah. this is very ironic, my husband is a psychiatrist. <laughs> and I only say no, that he's a, very seasoned, he's a seasoned psychiatrist because he lived through four <laughs> episodes. <laughs> he's got that yeah. personal experience. Yeah, he's got the personal, like many of these doctors have book experience. They don't have the experience of living through a breakdown. But my husband is very seasoned psychiatrist, and he's lived through them. And uh, he's better for that. He's a better doctor for that. Yeah, uh, you know, absolutely. Psychiatry is a very gray field, very gray. Not black and white like a heart attack or diabetes or anything like that. It's a very, you know, you're, you're dependent on what the patient is saying to you and what they're communicating to you, and if they're not communicating everything, you may not 
know that they're hiding something or there's a denial, they're in denial or whatever, or they're not taking the medication. Very gray, very gray field. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and I mean, they're, and they're also viewing things through the lens of their training and their experience with previous patients. You know, and, and that, you know, and with the fact that each person being is so unique, it, it, it can be a challenge to even identify a place to start or, or, or maybe a, a, a core um, reason, um, you know, for some of the behavior. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's a, like you say, it is a very gray area. It's a very subjective area. Um, but it's, it's um, and like you said earlier, it's really important, you know, for people to um, be under the care of someone who understands them, and you know, and they, they, they you can be honest with, and, and because, like you say, you know, sometimes, you know, some patients would maybe be reluctant to share some of their experiences, you know, with with a professional, um, but you know, that reluctance can actually be um, a very important part of the treatment. And then, so you kind of really need to be um, comfortable with sharing everything with the individual. Oh, yes, absolutely. And you have to develop a trust over time. It has to develop. It doesn't happen overnight. It has to develop, you know. Um, yeah. But, you know, you, you, yeah. as, as you said, and I said, everybody is different. Everybody, you know, has a different uh, pattern and a different experience, early childhood experiences. Everybody is, is different in that in that regard. And uh, the therapist should recognize that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I kind of want to shift a little bit, you know, to your painting, your artwork. Um, you know, on, on your um, Ruth um, Panarski website, you have your paintings, and you have some early works and some recent works. And, you know, I, I was going through admiring the art, um, and, you know, I, I wanted to get your your view on the difference between the early works and recent works. What What, what, are, what, what is different about those those two periods of time? Uh, well, the early works were um, maybe a little bit darker than the, the other works. Um, I mean, I stayed with the same motifs and, and the same kind of like genre and everything. It's all each painting is mm -hmm. like its own story. But I use uh, mm -hmm. I repeat with the animals. Uh, I use a lion a lot. I use some Rembrandt figures in my paintings, some Rodin thinker in my paintings. Um, I, I've developed the stories over time. You know, I've developed this style of incrementing uh, the symbols from art history with daily culture. And uh, that, you know, as I went on with the uh, with my recent works, that's what I incorporated more and more. Into yeah, the work. In the recent work, yeah, in the recent works, it really stood out to me the the lions, you know, the, the use of the lions and, um, you know, I believe there was a leopard in one. And, and But but also the newer work seems to have a lot of blue. 
<laughs> you know, I'm, I just seem to be, you know, I mean, it's my favorite color. So when, as I'm going through and I'm looking at it, it's like, there is a lot of blue in your work. Yeah, I like the blue. Um, I like blue, yeah. Okay. Okay, because it, it is, you know, it just, blue, blue is a very popular color and soothing. Peaceful. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, I, you know, I, yeah, I, I enjoy it. And, and like I say, I mean, it, if I were out and about and I saw one in, one of your paintings, it would, I'd be able to know right away. <laughs> you know, this is a, a Ruth Wynarski painting, you know, because of, of this distinctive style. Um, so anyway, I just, I enjoyed that and, yeah. and it was, you know, just you. from an artistic standpoint, kind of the differences between the two. Yeah, and then um, I have a uh, whole school painting, so I'm not on line. I have to put them on. It's a really, it's a, it's a lot to do. I've got to put them on line. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It, it, it can and, be. As I, I so, said, as I develop, I develop different motifs uh, in the paintings. I add different motifs, and that becomes uh, a little repeated uh, with different stories. So, mm-hmm. you know, as I develop, yeah, I've developed motifs, you could say, over time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I particularly like the, the one, the recent one of the woman sleeping, you know, with, with the animals around, you know, and, and, uh, oh, you know, yeah, that, that was, um, That's a very difficult. 
um, it, it could take a very long time to, to be able to establish uh, that knowledge to do that. Um, okay. It takes, it, it takes a long time. Um, so keep, but again, keep, keep going said, on. <laughs> you know, keep going. I mean, and you have to, you know, if you, if you find something's a little off, I read about it. There's so, tons of stuff to read. You know, to read and, and, you know, and, and talk about it and, and, you know, and talk to somebody about it. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of information out there and again, there's so many different medicines out there. Unbelievable. Compared to 1977. Yeah. There's a lot you can do for yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's very, very important. So now we're about ready to close. So is there maybe any other message, maybe something that we didn't cover that you think is important or any maybe additional final words for listeners? Um, no, I think we've covered a lot. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think that the, okay. the number one thing, though, throughout the book is you never give up. Never, ever give up. Yeah. That's my message. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, Ruth, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. I want to thank you for your time and for sharing your story with us. Oh, wonderful. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful talking with you. Great. You're very welcome. Uh, again, everyone, today my special guest has been Ruth Ponarski, and we've been talking about her book, Journey of the Self, Memoir of an Artist, and again, you can find out more by visiting her website, RuthPonyarski.com, and that's Ruth, P-O-N-I-A-R-S-K-I.com, or you can also visit BattlingMentalIllnessAlone.com. So everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Our Show, and until we meet again. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Blog Talk Radio, Amazon Music, and Audible. To follow our show on any of those platforms, visit ByteRadio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Bite Radio Me. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch. <laughs>